And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Mark Graney back to the program today. Mark has been on the program many times before to talk about his best-selling thriller novels. He co-wrote several Jack Ryan novels with Tom Clancy and authored several more for the estate after Mr. Clancy passed away. He and Marine Lieutenant Colonel H. Ripley Rawlings IV co-authored Red Metal, and Mark has enjoyed much solo success with his Gray Man series. Today we'll be talking about the 10th title, Relentless, which is available from Berkeley. I'm in Mark Graney's backyard, and what a difference a week makes. Yeah, exactly. A, a week ago yesterday was the coldest day we've had in Memphis in 30 years. And today, what is it, 65 right now, if not more? Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, we had, what, eight inches of snow on the ground? And... Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. I still have a little bit of snow. I said the last patch of snow in the city is right in front of my front door where I can get sued <laughs> when someone delivers something. So I had to shovel that. So with the pandemic, you rely a lot on on-the-ground research for your books. How have you been dealing with research for your next book coming up? Well, even for the book that I just turned in, I mean, that just came out, Relentless, the book is based in Berlin, and I, my plan was to go for four or five weeks and rent an apartment in Berlin and just work there. And, you know, when the pandemic started, I was like, wow, I may have to push this back to May. I may have to push this back to June. And then by July, the book was due, and little did I know, here we are a year later, and I still probably couldn't get into Berlin if I wanted to. Fortunately for me, I'd lived in Germany before. I've been to Berlin many, many times, and I was able to sort of use that. For the book I'm writing now, which is book 11 in the Gray Man series, a lot of it takes place in India and Mumbai. And my intention is to go. I'm looking at travel warnings and, and requirements and all that stuff all the time. But my intention is to go sometime in probably June. You could just sit one of them in Memphis. <laughs> I know. I, all my ideas are further afield than Memphis. But you, you'll know if this pandemic continues, next year's book is going to probably take place in East Memphis. Sure, you could do something with like vaccine distribution in FedEx or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, FedEx would be a great thing. I, in fact, I wrote a book that wasn't published that involved the hub and, and stuff like that. And I recycle old stuff all the time, so it could happen. The prologue for Relentless opens up with an unnamed CIA operative going down to South America. What's the job in Venezuela? The job in Venezuela is to locate and retrieve a man who is an employee from the NSA, the National Security Agency, who has stolen an invention of his own, basically, which is some software and a computer algorithm that identifies American assets abroad. So it's called Power Slave, and he has access to this, and he's run with it, and he's disappeared for a year, and now he's popped up in Venezuela. So they're trying to get him back, get the equipment back, and failing that to eliminate him. It's identifying American assets, but was it designed to identify whomever they wanted, or what would be the point of the NSA trying to find American assets with their own software? Originally, it was to identify anybody anywhere, but the biometric data of American CIA officers and NSA officers, DIA officers, is recorded by the government. And so this guy, Clark Drummond, who works for the NSA, took that data to use it originally to help Israel in their exploits around the world. So he was helping Israel, but why is he in Venezuela now? Because he thought he was helping Israel. He was working for a private intelligence company in Germany. And once he realized that they weren't who they said they were, he went on the run and now is hiding out in Venezuela trying to figure out how he can run from the people he just worked for and stay away from the American authorities at the same time. So the name of the software is Power Slave. Mm -hmm. I assume you're a big Iron Maiden fan. I am a big Iron Maiden <laughs> fan. You, you caught me. <laughs> so why did you decide that for the name of the software? 
I don't really have a good reason for that. It, I think I changed it a few times around, and I don't think that I've listened to the, that album in the last year or whatever. I, it was just something that came to me as I was trying to think, like, you know, what the equipment did. Literally, at one point, the software was called Machine Head, which is a Deep Purple album, but it's also part of a guitar, and, and I just changed it to Power Slave at some point. I, I do things like that sometimes. My hero, Court Gentry, his CIA code name is Violator, and that came Depeche from Mode. a Depeche Mode album. Yeah, and it, it was funny. I wanted to name a book Violator, and then my publisher was like, yeah, that name really does not resonate well on a, on a book cover. So I, I didn't think about that when I came up with it. In other music names, there's a character in there named Hewlett, and there's a Memphis musician named Jeff Hewlett. I was wondering if it was named after him. That's so funny because I know Jeff Hewlett, but I, I don't know him as a musician. I, obviously, I've seen him play before, but I, I know him personally, less so as a musician. I totally might have cribbed his name from that. That's funny. I should let him know. How long has it been since the previous entry in the Gray Man series? Just a number of weeks. I'd say it's uh, three to four weeks, if I'm not mistaken. Court took some pretty big damage. Correct. Near the end of that book, so how is he healing up? He is not healing up the way that he would have liked or anyone would have liked. The book actually opens with the hero, former CIA paramilitary, and then became a freelance assassin, and now is working on a contract basis with the CIA. It opens with him in a CIA medical facility, absolutely not ready to go back into the field, but the deputy director of operations shows up in his medical ward and all but yanks him out of his bed and throws him back into the field to try and fix the situation in Caracas. He's under a course of IV antibiotics, Mm -hmm. and you have some personal experience with that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Four years ago, I had a, a bad ankle surgery and it got infected, and I had to do essentially what the hero in the story does. And I remember even at the time while I was going through that, going, you never see the after effects of action thriller (laughs) novels of of the heroes getting hurt. They're always fine on page one of the next book. And it's like, what if you had something like this? And I'm, I'm always interested in implementing other vulnerabilities to the character other than him getting hit in the head with a baseball bat or, you know, bullets whizzing by his face. There's other types of vulnerabilities. And some of them are emotional. And that happens some in, in this book. And then some of them are physical, but not in the way you might think. So he's he's a wounded animal, but he's still very relentless and has this grit and determination that I wanted to show. So at what point is he going to come 50% scar tissue? These things require a uh, suspension of disbelief because it's interesting. I think about this a lot. There's a TV show called The Punisher that I really, really like. And it is complete fantasy, the abuse the character takes in it and then keeps fighting or, you know, in the next episode, he's better. But you believe it because it's so well written and the actor emotes so well that you feel every excruciating thing that happens to him. And then when he's better, he's just better. So I I see stuff like that and I think about it for my own work. And I think like, all right, your job is to sell this as best you can. But if you really think about it, my hero is in his late 30s and has been parkouring it and gunfighting it for, you know, 20 years now, basically. And you would have built up a lot of injuries in the interim. I don't even have him wearing glasses. So (laughs) you look at it that way. So in book time, has it been about five years for the course of all the books? Maybe a little bit less. You know, it's funny. Book time has become less and less important to me as the series has become longer and longer and longer. Daniel Silva is one of my favorite authors. He writes the Gabriel Alon series, and he made the decision early on he was going to age his hero in time with the book. And so now his hero is, I think, close to 60 or 60 or so, which works great in a Daniel Silva book. It works fantastic, and I, and I love them and can't wait when they come out. It would not work in a gray man book. 
the first book came out coming up on 12 years ago, and I think I said he was 36 or 37 years old then. So he'd be pushing 50 now, but he's not. He's still 36, 37, and it's, and it's less important to me, you know, the internal logic of the of the series as I would have thought it would have been. But here we are, book 10 in, and I'm trying to deliver what readers want. James Bond, you might have noticed, Dr. No came out in 62. They're not using Michael Caine now or, or somebody like that to be James Bond for just that reason. Well, I guess he lives in the eternal present. Yeah, exactly. Now, what are court-specific orders in going down to Venezuela? He's in a program called Poison Apple, which is a denied program where these three assets who are all denied assets that don't actually work for the CIA take orders directly from the deputy director of operations. One of the three assets has been captured by Venezuelan intelligence on a mission in Venezuela to recover this American NSA officer. The court's job is to go down there, and at first he thinks he, it's his job to rescue his partner, but they're like, nope, he can, that guy is going to have to deal with it, his own, his own problems. Your job is to do the mission that he failed. And so he has to uh, go down to Venezuela, to Caracas, find this NSA officer, and get him to talk, get him extracted to the U.S., or failing all that, kill him. And so then we move on to the next chapter, and we meet a group of military contractors. They're in Yemen, and they're not really concerned about collateral damage in their missions. Yes, that's correct. There's a lot of things in this book that are real to life and probably look completely fictional to readers that don't know. Well, let's just say it like this. The United Arab Emirates has kind of a, a deal with the CIA to where the CIA does not spy on the UAE. And also the UAE is fighting a proxy war in Yemen against Iranian-backed forces. In so doing, they've hired American former military guys to be mercenaries, not just to fight in the war, but to actually take part in direct action missions and targeted assassinations. So the scene that you're referring to very early in the book where these American mercenaries are going to assassinate some Iranian-backed political leaders down in Yemen, something very, very similar happened. Less of a shootout, more of a just bombing, but there was definitely shooting on the street and all that other stuff. So that's actually taken out of, out of reality, unfortunately. So does someone get labeled a contractor versus a mercenary, depending on which side of the war they're on? I think that's a fair thing. I mean, I, you know, I think there was a time where you could say Eric Prince ran a private military company. And then there's a time you could say Eric Prince was uh, running, you know, mercenaries. And that's how I look at it. Real briefly, you mentioned the Yemen conflict, but I still don't have a good grasp of the sides and what's going on. Could you give us just a little overview of that? Yeah, only what I can remember because I wrote this book over a year ago. But I mean, honestly, the Iranians have rebels, a proxy force in Yemen fighting. And then there's Iranian Quds Force, actual, you know, intelligence operatives. They're in Yemen fighting and directing their proxies. And the UAE and Saudi Arabia have in the past mostly been allied in fighting in Yemen. The United States has been supporting them at least verbally. You know, we're on that side, which is why there is this gray area where the former American military guys can go down there and fight for the UAE. But the UAE and Saudi Arabia are supporting, you know, another side in the, in the war. So it's, it's a straight on faction war, but it's a proxy war between Sunnis and Shias. And the UAE and Saudi Arabia are really trying to fight 
Shia expansion into in the Middle East. And this is, you know, it's almost like the domino effect, you know, that you always heard of during the Cold War, that countries were either allied with the communists or they were allied with us. And if they were starting to lean communist, we would do things either with intelligence or straight up military actions. And And I think it's a little bit like that. It seems like they view it as a zero-sum game, that there's not really a way to coexist. Exactly. They see Iran's strengthening as bad for them, which is exactly why they made you know a pact with Israel that had nothing to do with any sort of like peace or coming to terms or whatever. It was just this real pol- politic situation where the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So with the change in presidential administrations, have you seen USA is going to change direction on this policy at all? Not really, other than the fact I think we're going to take a more hard line with Saudi Arabia, Yemen specifically. I haven't really been looked into it. It's the funny thing about writing two books a year or even one book a year. Your nose is so deep into what you're working on now that I've literally been asked to go speak at embassies about things that I've written about in books. And I'm thinking, well, if I knew more about it then, I don't now because it's been a year and a half since. You know, I don't want to portray myself as an expert on it. I do the research that I need to do for the story when I'm writing it and hopefully that it's on the page. So in this group of mercenaries, you can sense their cockiness because their call signs are all like ancient European gods. Yeah, I was just looking for something different call signs. So there's Hades and Atlas and, and Mars and Zeus and Thor. And Thor. And I just thought they have to have call signs. My hero's call sign is <laughs> Violator for crying out loud. So, <laughs> so I, I can get a little campy with it. Exactly who is employing this squad of mercenaries? They're employed by the Signals Intelligence Agency, which is the CIA of the United Arab Emirates, specifically their deputy director, a fellow named Sultan al-Habsi. At the beginning of the book, he's using them on these direct action missions in Yemen, which is how the story opens. But very quickly, he sends them to Venezuela. You know, they're like, you mean Venezuela like in <laughs> South America? You know, like they have no they have no idea why they're going down to, to Venezuela, but it's all part and parcel with this operation that, that the hero court gentry is on. It's in this situation with Al-Habsi that family problems become international incidents. Yeah, that developed as I was writing the story. It was funny. I, this was more of a seat of the pants story than some of my others. And it started out that Al-Habsi was the son of the ruler of Dubai. And as time went on, I created this sort of conflict between the two of them. The, the ruler is, is about to die. He's dissatisfied with his son. He, he had three sons. Two of them died in, in Yemen in different capacities. And the one remaining, who's like one of the heads of his own intelligence agency, he feels has failed him and failed his brothers and failed his nation and failed his sect. The son is not trying to curry favor with his father by doing this one last big operation before his father dies. Well, he is trying to curry favor, but not because he wants to be in his father's good graces for any other reason than he wants his father to bequeath the throne to him. There's a difference between being the head of an emirate and the UAE. Right. Yeah, that's something I learned along the way. So there's seven emirates, but you can be the the ruler of an emirate, but not the actual leader of the entire United Arab Emirates. That, That person is chosen. It'd be kind of like us picking the president from the governors of states. Yeah, from the governors of the states, exactly. So we then shift to Berlin, and we meet a young woman. She's going for a job interview. Her name's Stephanie Arthur. What kind of work is she looking for? She wants to get hired by this intelligence organization, a private commercial intelligence organization, ostensibly, in Berlin. And she goes for her interview, and she gets hired, but... Very quickly during the interview, they explained to her they know who she really is. She's not really Stephanie Arthur from the United States. 
She's Zoya Zakharova from Russia. Now, Zoya is also in Poison Apple. She's the third asset in Poison Apple, the CIA group. These people don't know that, but they do know that she's a former Russian foreign intelligence officer who's been burned by her own agency. So they have the power, this company that she's being hired into, to pick up the phone and have her killed by just letting Moscow know that they found where Zoya Zakharova is hiding out. Zoya and Court have had a very checkered past. Enemies, friends, enemies, frenemies. <laughs> where, where do they stand right now? Court is in love with her. That much is clear. I think Zoya loves him back. I spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff, and you think, well, what would it be like to be in a relationship or trying to be in a relationship with someone who has a lot of the same abilities as you, a lot of the same trust issues by necessity that you have, and is, you know, fighting the bad guys and dodging bullets and jet-setting around as an intelligence operative. So their relationship is never really going to be the white picket fence and the babies and all that, probably. But it is this thing where when they encounter one another here and there, there's something rekindled. There's also a lot of mistrust. And Zoya is the type of person that does not want court to protect her in any way, shape, or form. Court is the type of person where he feels like he's doing the right thing, the valiant thing, by looking over her, and that just really bothers her. Well, a sense of self-determination and her strength that she doesn't need that, but also she knows that it puts him at an operational disadvantage if he's always worrying about her instead of his own self. Yeah, both things exactly right. Personality-wise, she doesn't like the fact that he's sort of telling her what he thinks is right for her to do, and then also operationally-wise, in this book specifically— He's there on a mission, but he sees his mission as to uh, look out for Zoya. What kind of information are they looking for her to get from the Shrike infiltration? So Shrike is, is the intelligence company, and the CIA is under the impression that it's Israeli-run. But they're trying to find out what their real mission is, because what they're learning is that Shrike is not just collecting intelligence on Iranian operatives and embassy officials in Europe, which is ostensibly what they're doing, but they're also tailing Iranian anti-regime forces. So there's something bigger at play here that the U.S. doesn't understand. Due to restrictions that we have spying in Germany, not as cut and dried as with the UAE, where we flat out say we don't collect intelligence on the UAE. In Germany, we just got busted doing it several years ago. So that's part of the story here to where the CIA is really tiptoeing around in Germany for political reasons. So that's why Matthew Hanley, the deputy director of operations, sends his poison asset people into Germany to find out who this company is really allied with. Now, her handler back at the CIA, of course, off the books is Suzanne Brewer. And does Suzanne Brewer like any other human being? No, she, Suzanne Brewer is manipulative. Very early on, when I, when I created Suzanne Brewer five books back, I thought, wouldn't it be cool if Court had a handler who was trying to kill him? And the readers know it, but Court doesn't know it. And that's still sort of the case. And Suzanne is now running the operations of Zoya Zakharova as well. They have a very checkered past. They do not get along well. Suzanne Brewer is a jet setter. We've all sort of met people like that in corporations or whatever, but this is at sort of a stratospheric level of that. She hurt her ankle like you did several years ago. How's she recovering from that? That's completely in the past. Yeah, she didn't hurt it like I did. I hurt my ankle, you know, it was an old soccer injury, and hers was running her car off the road to break a guy's neck who was in the car <laughs> with her. So there was a difference there. I just want to point that out. But, yeah, you're right. She had a broken leg in back blast, which is five books ago now. Zoya is in a position now that 
court was in the past with the CIA and that Russian secret services want her dead. Right. And we meet an assassination squad that's been tasked with taking care of her. And their hitter, Maxim Akolov, he's got a lot of personal problems. Yeah, Akolov is the guy who is the trigger puller for this four-person team of Russian assassins who've been sent to Berlin to kill Zoya. And Maxim is just... He's walking dead, basically, at this point in his career, not from physical things, but from psychological issues. He's been an assassin for a really, really long time. And this was just more of, like, my thought process of, like, okay, so Court definitely has some PTSD. He definitely has some issues. His moral compass doesn't point true north, as I always say. But what if it was 50 times that as far as what he's seen, what he's done? What if he didn't have the moral compass at all? And that's Akulov, and Akulov has done things and seen things that, that haunt him while he's still alive and to the point where, you know, he's sort of contemplating suicide, raging alcoholic, but he's very, very good at one thing, and he's trying to do that one more time before he checks out. You set up quite a few of these pairs of people to compare and contrast against, mm-hmm. Hanley and Alhabsi, Court and Akulov and such. So you're really getting in the psychology of these characters a lot in this one. Yeah, I want to do something different with each book. And this novel from the very beginning, you know, I planned it in Berlin, which is the best spy city in the world, you know, as far as intrigue and... and, and Not Vienna? No, I'd still, I'd say Berlin. I I would say Vienna's a good choice, but uh, I would say Berlin. So I wanted this to be the book with tons of intrigue and double crosses and triple crosses. And, you know, it has all the action and mercenaries and spies and terrorists and, you know, freedom fighters that any of my other stories do. But at the same time, it has a lot of psychological drama, almost like an old Cold War spy novel. You've got a lot of players on the chessboard this time around. Was it more difficult than previous novels trying to keep all these threads aiming toward the same direction? Yes, for sure. This book was tough to write. I think I say that with every book now because it does get tougher to write. (laughs) This is my 10th Gray Man novel, but it's actually my 20th published novel. I really don't want to tread over ground I've tread before, so I'm always looking for something different. And in my research for this book, you know, I found out about this company, Dark Matter, which is started by the United Arab Emirates, who's the villain here. And it was a private intelligence company that was hiring people from Mossad and MI6 and NSA to do spying, like cyber spying. But they were actually doing it against Western targets. So when I saw that, I was like, OK, there's this company in Berlin that is doing the same thing for the UAE. And when I saw the the mercenaries, you know, that working for the UAE, I added those to the mix. I'm fascinated with the Russian assassination attempts and some successes, you know, that have happened in the past few years with the GRU. And I wanted to put that in the book. So it is hard to manage once you have all these pieces on the chessboard, but hopefully it makes for an entertaining story. So why do you think Russia, when it goes after its people who have left the country or like Navalny, who are still in the country and oppose the Putin regime, they go through this trouble to poison them in a way that almost seems ridiculous. I agree with that. They use things like Novichok or polonium or or whatever, and it doesn't work. It seems like it doesn't work more than it it works. It makes them very, very sick, and and people die from it. They absolutely... In Moscow, they, you know, a couple of years ago, they just shot a guy or, you know, they'll run over somebody or something. It seems oh, people fly out a lot of windows there. People too. fly out of a lot of windows. I feel like there's a message being sent with these poisonings, but they just don't seem all that successful with it. <laughs> you know, it, but what's the message? I mean, I think the message is it's Russia and we can get to you. I mean, if Novichuk is the agent that's used on you, it's probably coming out of Russia. If 
uh, polonium poisoning is what got you. It's coming out of one of the nations that has polonium. And if you're a critic of Russia and you get polonium poisoning, it's probably Russia doing it. And, and I feel like, you know, they're like, damn, the sanctions or whatever that come our way, it's more important to us to scare people that have left the country that we can get to them. You know, they can't even reach for a cup of tea without thinking that Moscow is going to get them. When we spoke last year, you talked about a uh, exclusive for Audible that mm-hmm. you were working on. What's the status of that project? Well, it would have already been out if not for COVID. They were supposed to record it last May. They're actually recording it in March, so they start recording it in, in a couple weeks. It is called Armored, and it is a scripted audio play. They have, I think, 35 actors or something wow. like that, sound effects and whatnot. There's, I think, 13 Mexican national speaking parts, so they're, they're actually doing it remotely with actors in Mexico City. And it's, it's a big production. So I guess since the last time we talked, I also optioned that in Hollywood to Sony Pictures uh, with Michael Bay to direct. So that happened. And then last fall, I signed a two-book deal to write Armored as a novel and expand upon the original audio play and then to do a sequel to that. So that one entity is, has expanded quite a bit. What's the uh, general setting and the character structure like? Armored is about a young American who takes a job for a private military contractor who is known as the worst private military contractor on earth. They're called Armored Saint. Another reference. To, <laughs> <laughs> you found me out, Stephen. John Bush <laughs> says hello. <laughs> yeah, you, you found me out. It was very superficial. Lee Child has several novels that are lines out of rock songs, like Bad Luck and Trouble is from White Nick's song. And, I remember uh, on Killing Floor, Zeppelin. Early days in Law and Order, they used to use musicians for character like bit mm-hmm. part character names yeah. so there's someone named lane staley mm. they use the jazz musician ross on roland kirk they called someone roland oh, kirk wow. so it's just like every episode there was a musician named wow. in the script that's awesome yeah so armored saint is a very bad private military company that is hired in mexico to go up onto the devil's spine of the sierra madres and kind of chaperone some diplomats who are trying to work out a deal with a drug cartel And this guy, Josh Duffy, who is the hero of the series, is on one of the gun trucks that's up there in this big motorcade. And they're just weathering onslaughts from without, from the the cartels and and other forces and within. There's a double cross inside. So I say it's a little bit like Apocalypse Now, this journey. And it's a little bit like Black Hawk Down with the action. And it's a little bit Fast and Furious because it is an over-the-top story. You mentioned Michael Bay just a second ago. He was previously attached with the Gray Man. Mm Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of forward motion with the gray man as hitting the screens. What's the status on that? Yeah, there has been. They announced last July that Netflix would do the gray man with Ryan Gosling to star in the lead role and Chris Evans to be the villain, this guy named Lloyd, who's in the first book. So it's an adaptation of the first gray man novel, which is just simply called the gray man. And it's being directed by the Russo brothers and shooting is supposed to start March 1st, which is here we are. It's been pushed back eight weeks so far because of COVID. I haven't heard about them pushing it back again. They're supposed to shoot into May in Los Angeles or Long Beach and then also overseas. And it would be out probably sometime next year. Is it a feature or a multi-part? 
It's a feature. From the very beginning, when I first met with the Russo brothers years ago and they, they wrote the screenplay, they said they wanted to make a franchise out of it. And that's still what they're saying publicly. They want there to be more Gray Man films after the first one. So, I mean, I'm by the time the first one comes out, I will have 11 books out. So they do have some stuff to draw upon if they choose to draw upon my stories. I wish it were a series just so they could really get in-depth and not kind of just hit the big beats. It's different. I look at it very stoically. It's a different medium than the books. The books are always going to—I'm the author of the books. They're always going to be there. There's no greater advertisement for me for my series of Gray Man novels than, you know, the Russo brothers making a feature for Netflix— if it were a series, they probably would tell the story differently or whatever, which might be good. But I, I read an early script, or I read the first script that Joe Russo wrote several years ago and thought it was fantastic. And it, as, as close to the original as any author can reasonably expect. Now, there's been other writers that have been involved since then, screenwriters that the Russo brothers have hired. So I don't know what the actual shooting script looks like. I imagine there's going to be all sorts of differences, but they're, they're all artists and creative people who I trust, and I think it'll be good. Mark Graney is the author of Relentless, the 10th installment in the Gray Men series, which is published by Berkeley. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.